Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, we pay tribute to Japanese designer Issei Miyagi. He was one of the first designers in the 70s when he launched his brand to go to Paris and to put Japan on the, on the map as a country where fabric innovation, craftsmanship, impeccable designs happen. Plus, the top songs in the USA. People absolutely love him. I mean, if he's on the cover of a magazine, it will be sold out. I think as it was, it's the perfect pop track. It, you know, has elements of aha from the 80s, but a little bit of kind of yacht rock here and there. It is a beautiful track. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, our fashion editor reflect on the career and legacy of the esteemed fashion designer Issei Miyake following his death last week. The world's fashion elite gather for the introduction of new clothing by designer Issei Miyake. Although Issei Miyake spends most of his time in Japan, he finds it advantageous to show his collections in Paris. It was here that Miyake apprenticed with such couturiers as Givenchy and Guy La Roche. Since setting up his own studio in 1970, the designer has set a style so avant-garde. Issey Miyake was one of the greatest fashion designers of our time, I would say, and he was globally known. He was one of the first designers in the 70s when he launched his brand to go to Paris and to put Japan on the, on the map as a country where fabric innovation, craftsmanship, impeccable designs uh, happen. He was, maybe along with uh, some of his peers like Ray Kawakubo from Comte de Garçon, he was the one that really spearheaded and made Japan famous for this approach to dressing and to clothing. Beautiful, practical garments that people wear time and time again. Can you tell me what about that fabric, about that amazing pleated fabric and what you do with it? The first I had imagination and then, you know, the first I make a clothes and I put it into the machine. It's like uh -huh. uh, to make uh, the baguette. French, uh, French, uh, you know, bread. All right. <laughs> it's easy, you know. <laughs> I don't think it's as easy as making a baguette, no. I think when you say Simiyaki, the first thing that people bring to mind is Pleats Please, one of his most popular franchises under his company. The clothing that's made of this crinkled uh, fabric that doesn't uh, crease, it stretches and he makes the clothes for men and women in different colors and uh, a lot of people just wear them as their daily uniform. The way that he played with color, the way that he blended craftsmanship and technology as well were things that he was really admired for and will always be remembered for. He was also a designer that was a real individualist that had a, a real purist uh, approach to design, which is becoming more and more rare. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why this is a loss for, for the fashion industry. I make uh, clothing. Clothing means, in Japanese, fuku. Then fuku means happiness. And probably I'm uh, trying to make uh, fuku and happiness for the people and for myself too. <laughs> 
when he started in the 70s, he was really innovative in terms of his fragrance business as well. So L'Odice is one of his uh, most famous fragrances up until today. And he was really innovative when it launched for, again, this more purist approach and the way he approached fragrance. Pleats Please became its own uh, franchise and its own brand in, in 2010 and has been growing in popularity ever since. So that's another big milestone. And I believe that people will be wearing those pleated garments for years and years to come. Another big milestone was when he created a separate franchise for his accessories called Bao Bao. Again, very popular, very futuristic, triangular shaped handbags that again place together like puzzles, these triangular shapes. And it's, uh, it shows how he was committed to craftsmanship and innovation always. Isemiyaki was as a person as well so highly regarded because he was always in the background, always putting the focus on his clothes and on the product rather than himself, which is again a rarity in, in the fashion designer circles where egos run high, I would say. He really cared about serving customers' everyday needs and, and thinking about contemporary life and how can he serve the customer with the best made product. He never followed trends. He was always stuck to his own guns. In recent years, Isemiyaki had taken a bit of a step back and uh, let his design teams take the lead with, with much of the design of the, of the seasonal collections. And they were working under his supervision, but he wanted to be even more in the background and to take it slow, always being a purveyor of slow fashion, a slower lifestyle. And he was also doing a lot of work in art, supporting artists and setting up the Isemiyaki Foundation. The most recent project that he worked on was setting up of the exhibition in Tokyo as part of the 2121 design site. It sort of charted the making of the Arc de Triomphe Unwrapped project with Jean-Claude and Christo from when it was conceived as a dream in the, in the 60s in Paris up until the day that it was presented in September 21. He managed to see it come alive just before his passing. I don't want to... I have a stamp, Japanese designer Isemiyake. First of all, Isemiyake. That's world. all, for the world. He exemplifies what fashion designers should be before social media and the world of celebrity came into the fashion industry, being an individualist and, and focusing on making really well-crafted products. I think that's the biggest legacy and the biggest example that uh, he leaves behind him. And I know that he has great teams, again, working in the background, but great teams that support this approach and this ethos and will continue his work. And now, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has recently been visiting Africa, especially South Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Rwanda. First of all, let's hear from Monaco's resident South African, Emma Searle. For the second time as America's top diplomat, Anthony Blinken is touring the African continent. The U.S. Secretary of State was in South Africa earlier this week before heading to the DRC and Rwanda, where he's expected to address the recent surge of deadly violence along the borders between the two countries. 
Blinken's trip comes hot on the heels of a flurry of charm offensives on the continent by French President Emmanuel Macron and most recently Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who unsurprisingly used his tour as an opportunity to blame the soaring grain prices in Africa on the West's sanctions on Russia. Blinken has taken a more subtle approach to this tug-of-war game. While in South Africa, his main message was that any partnership with the region ought to be equal. Across all of the work that we're doing together, what we seek most of all is a true partnership between the United States and Africa. We don't want an imbalanced or transactional relationship. Partnership, according to Blinken, includes cooperating on the issues of democracy, investment, COVID recovery support and clean energy. Blinken also took part in South Africa's Women's Day celebrations and paid a visit to the township of Soweto, the heartland of the country's anti-apartheid struggle. But Blinken's cordial meeting with his South African counterpart, Naledi Pandor, failed to mask the elephant in the room, the two countries' differences regarding the war in Ukraine. While the U.S. has rallied Western support for Ukraine, many African governments, including South Africa, have refused to criticize Russia for its invasion, choosing to adopt a more neutral stance. Here's South Africa's Foreign Minister Pandor. Firstly, uh, on uh, the matter of Russia and Ukraine, there is no one in South Africa who supports war. We've made that very clear. And we have said that we wish to see intensified efforts at increased diplomacy, utilizing the good offices of the United Nations, particularly the Secretary General, and other leaders who may be of weight in terms of persuading the interlocutors to come around the table and negotiate a settlement of this awful conflict. This is the position of South Africa. Minister Pandor went on to stress that South Africa is vehemently against war and that all citizens before 1994, during the country's oppressive apartheid regime, understand why all too well. Indeed, some have speculated that South Africa's relevant ambivalence regarding the war in Ukraine might be motivated by nostalgia for the Soviet Union's support for their own liberation struggles. Many members of the ANC, for instance, were trained in the USSR during apartheid. This sentiment was echoed by none other than Nelson Mandela himself during a TV appearance in the U.S. back in 1990. One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. While the USSR gained respect from the ANC for supporting their liberation efforts, Across the waters in the U.S., the Reagan administration was blasted for not taking a strong enough stance against apartheid. Joe Biden, then a U.S. senator from Delaware, was especially vocal at the time. Then you say on page 14, we must not become part of South Africa's problem. We must remain part of their solution. We must not aim to impose ourselves, our solutions, our favorites in South Africa. Damn it, we have favorites in South Africa. The favorites in South Africa are the people who are being repressed by that ugly white regime. We have favorites. Our loyalty is not to South Africa, it's to South Africans. And the South Africans are majority black, and they are being excoriated. It is not to some stupid puppet government over there. It is not to the Afrikaners regime. We have no loyalty to them. We have no loyalty to South Africa, to South Africans. 
Relations have been mostly amicable since the end of apartheid, with the exception of America's war in Iraq, a decision which South Africa vehemently opposed. Former President Barack Obama received a warm welcome when he visited South Africa back in 2013. Ties once again became strained, however, under Donald Trump's presidency, especially following the former president's disparaging comments about African and other developing nations, which did nothing to improve relations with the ANC leadership. Ours is not a shithole country, neither is Haiti or any other country in distress. And it is extremely offensive for President Trump to make statements about other countries that are really not uh, complementary of the U.S.'s position or policy positions on those countries. Joe Biden has since taken pains to repair relations. But, as Americans have now learnt, South Africa's support can't be taken for granted. As Africa's most developed economy and a key democratic ally in the region, South Africa has other buyers. As Beijing, Moscow and Washington compete for influence, South Africa will make the most of this leverage. All in all, while Blinken's visit to the region is a good place to start, the US will need to up its game if it seeks to revitalize relations with Africa in the long run. For Monocle 24, I'm Emma Searle. You are listening to The Curator, Monaco 24. Time to talk music press now. I had the pleasure to speak with Ted Kessler, former editor of Q Magazine, on his new memoir, Paper Cuts. It's a slightly over-egged title. The Paper Cuts <laughs> bit is good. I, like, I was very happy with the Paper Cuts. I pleased myself to the afternoon off when I thought of that. But the, uh, the subtitle is, is a little bit over-egged. It was a working title that I just got stuck with, and by the end, the publisher was like, no, it's really good, keep it. I'm like, okay. I know that's a thing that's going to annoy people. And it has been the thing that's annoyed people. Uh, it's the one thing that, um, for example, John Mulvey, who's an old colleague of mine and edits Mojo magazine, did take issue with that on social media, saying, well, you know, I'd like to think the music press is still going. And, you know, it, he's still got a job and that magazine's still going. So I did feel bad about that. But um, there you go. But if you read the book, actually, it's not negative at all, actually. It ends on a very positive note. I know we're starting the interview talking about the final pages of the book, but actually, I think you still remain quite positive uh, about well, the music press, in a know, way. In a way. I'm, I'm not of the press itself. I, music journalism, I will say, has never been more, in my experience, well, it's not has been, actually. Music journalism is, is, is in robust health, and there's a lot of it, and there's you can read tons of it, and in fact, you know, if you include music books, which we should do, there are tons of music books. I can't remember a time when there's been more music books published. There is hundreds of them. I mean, there's too many of them. There's four a month at the moment, it seems to be, and I can't get through them, and they're all quite interesting. So there's lots of music journalism, but in terms of the music press, what it represented when I grew up, which was... I grew up and there were three weekly inky music magazines, plus there was Smash Hits, which is a, a fortnightly pop magazine. I mean, those those enemy, Melody Maker, Sound, Smash Hits, between them, those four would sell well over a million a month. Then there was also Q magazine, which would sell 250,000 copies a month. Then there was Select Vox. So it represented a lot of, a lot of acreage on the newsstand, and it also... It was something that you you joined, so you became a member of each club. So if I was a member of the NME, like I was an enemy reader. That was really what I believed in, and it really became my language, the way I spoke, and it was the only place, I, and it, was, it also became my educator in terms of politics and music and all sorts of stuff. So 
in terms of that, the music press has has gone, and we don't. It's that now we have a very broad lens, and you can pick bits and pieces. But there's not something that feels so tribal, and I think personally, that's a shame. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a that's a big shame for the culture and for alternative culture and alternative literature. But there is lots of music journalism, and there's you know newsletters, books, websites. But do you feel part of those gangs? I don't think you do. And that's one part of the book that actually I'm still thinking actually about that quote because it's very well for the papers to cover music, but they cover in a different way. It's more oh, there's this trend. But as you're saying, a nice band with a great third album. I mean, maybe they're not finding you know the space on, on kind of a more mainstream publication. No, no, there's definitely not. And I'll give you an example of that right now. This week, there's a band called Working Men's Club who are on their second album, and. It's just gone in at number 11, and it's on Heavenly, so it's an indie label. It's number 11. Now, the singer of that band, Sid, a guy called Sid, whose surname I cannot remember at the moment, he's a real character, and his lyrics are quite interesting, and the music's quite out there, and they've got a cult following, but you would not know anything about them. It's very hard. There's no. If they'd been in the music press, he would have been on, say, Enemy Twice Already cover. You know, it'd been a bit at the start. They'd been on for a sort of early single or the first album, and they'd have a big one now. And there'd be like a whole story. We'd have the whole background of that band, and they'd have a little cult following. But at the moment, we don't really know who they are, and they just and it's just this, this the mythology is not being stored up for future use, and it's very important. So when I talked about Mojo a minute ago, it's very important that that mythology is built up within the press, so in future generations they have something to write about. <laughs> and at the moment, we don't have those stories. We don't know where those people are coming from, and so yeah, them. I mean, there's also the band like the Cortinas, a massive band. Like not not particularly interesting to a lot of people, but they play stadiums, they play Old Trafford. I mean, they play 60,000 people and there's no press on them, very little, occasionally a little sort of snippy review here and there. You know, I think in the old days, those bands would have been covered and be a bit more mythology growing around them. But your first uh, kind of experience with the music press was for a title, which I, I didn't know before reading the book, to be honest. Was it the, the, the Lime Lizard? It's called Lime Lizard, yeah. yeah. It was just a... Mm. It was a a woman called Britt Collins, who's an American woman who lived in Highbury, who had a load of lizards in her flat. She's mad about lizards and <laughs> snakes and that kind of thing. Anyway, she had a little fanzine, and um, it was meant to be monthly. It was more like it was quarterly, really, and it was pretty haphazard. But it was very well designed, and she managed to get some very good photographers together to work on it. And she gave chance to a lot of writers who weren't writers, such as me. I didn't. I wasn't a writer at that stage. I didn't know it, you know... I loved music and I knew everything about it, but I was a bit of a no-hoper. And uh, she gave me the chance to go and interview some some people and really threw me in. And I mean, it, it was the deep end that I was drowning, but it, water wasn't very deep because I wasn't getting paid. And uh, you know, it's. But I did go interview my hero. I mean, inter interviewed Lawrence from Felt at the time, who was a massive hero, and I interviewed Billy Childers, who at that time I was massive fan of and I managed to go meet these people and have a drink with them in a pub or sit in their flat and learn how to interview people really sink and swim so yeah that was that was how it started for me and it it's interesting you're talking about you meeting the people you love because one thing that's becoming harder and harder with more PRs and everything is, is it, it's difficult to get access uh, to some of the names, right? Well, it's reach, isn't it? So yeah. I think in the old days there was a lot of, I mean, even something like Lime would be read by 20,000 people. So that's quite, I mean, that's, you know, nowadays a magazine would not sell 20,000 people. Mm. Q was barely selling that when it folded. So yeah, and you know, they can talk directly to fans via social media and stuff. And so it's quite hard to get the bigger artists nowadays, yeah, the time of people is quite hard, I think. 
One of my favorite parts of the book, I love when uh, Paul Weller kind of, he got a little bit into a fight with you because you gave a six out of 10 to him. But, but now he's here saying, you're a great writer. He's, That's lovely, right? He sent me a text the day before <laughs> the book came out, actually, and said, good luck with the book, mate. I hope I'm in it. I hope there's a chapter in it about me. Uh, good, I hope the launch goes well. It's very, he's a very, you know, he's very, knowing that very few other A-list pop stars would, would bother to remember that and then text me and wish me luck and yeah we did fall I mean I was in the jam fan club when I grew up I was a massive jam fan and I was obsessed by them when I was like 11 12 13 14 kind of went off not didn't go off them but I grew out of it a bit but I you know I really loved Paul Weller he, I still dress a bit like him but I was just given his album to Stanley Road to review by NME and I couldn't lie I didn't like it very much I thought it was okay I gave it a six which I thought was quite generous it's at not the time. bad right it's, for me it's, it sounds like a five the record <laughs> but I think it read like a five and I think that's really what bothered him and he threatened to beat me up well you know he offered me the chance to go and fight him obviously he would have won I turned it down we had a bit of you know back and forth about it over the coming years And for Tall Stories this week, Henry Rich Sheridan looks at how Northern Ireland is seeking to move beyond its history of sectarian conflict by confronting the related murals that dot the city. In June, a mural in Belfast was whitewashed. Public art has a reputation for being anodyne, but that couldn't be said of this painting. It was a vast, multi-war tribute to official military and paramilitary forces that had fought for the cause of keeping Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. It's unclear why the mural, known as Freedom Corner, was painted over, but its whitewashing draws attention to the ongoing debate over what to do with sectarian murals in Northern Ireland. Murals have been part of the political culture in the north of Ireland since at least 1908, but they proliferated during the 30-year period of heightened sectarian and political conflict known as the Troubles. The Troubles started in the late 1960s. Irish Catholics staged mass protests against discrimination in housing, employment and other areas. But this movement descended into wide-scale street violence. On the one side were mainly Catholic nationalists who wanted the province to become part of the Republic of Ireland to the south. On the other were mainly Protestant unionists who wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. As the violence between the two groups escalated, paramilitaries were established on both sides and murals supporting both causes began to crop up in Belfast and other cities. They were a form of folk propaganda, seeking to glamorise the volunteer paramilitary groups who did much of the fighting. They also sought to connect the conflict to wider historical and social themes. Republican murals emphasised the history of Irish struggle against British imperialism, while unionist murals emphasised the historical contribution of Northern Irish people to Britain's war efforts. They also harkened back to the even older military victory of Protestant King William III at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. In 1998, the signing of the Good Friday Agreement ended most of the sectarian violence in Northern Ireland. And, in the years since, the murals have morphed from active recruitment propaganda into tourist attractions. 
taxi drivers operate tours of the most notable ones and explain the stories behind them. There's also been an official effort to replace the murals with less divisive imagery. Since 2006, the state-run Re-Imaging Communities programme has awarded funds to artists to create new, non-sectarian street art in place of the murals. This movement towards more inclusive imagery has gained broad popular support, but it hasn't won everyone over. A mural celebrating the life of George Best has been replaced with a paramilitary painting of a gunman. Well, the image in East Belfast has been branded intimidating and inappropriate by councillors who say the area should be celebrating its successes rather than stepping back into the past. This is the mural in Sydenham's Invernook Court. The political tensions that inspired the original murals haven't gone away entirely. And while the peace brokered in 1997 has largely held since then, the past few years have seen tensions flare up. The main cause has been Brexit and the prospect of tighter border controls between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Outbreaks of violence have been relatively contained so far, but at times like this, the remaining paramilitary murals regain some of their troubling salience. Northern Ireland's murals reveal how the meaning of political street art can shift over time and how grassroots public art will always remain beyond the full control of the state. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We have a recipe for you now by Norbert Niederkoffler. He's the three Michelin-starred chef. He is going to give us a little taster of a freshwater fish recipe that he serves at his Alpen restaurant in South Tyrol. Hello, I am Norbert Niederkoffler. I'm talking to you from the restaurant Alpin on top of uh, Blanc de Coronas with a beautiful view on the Dolomites. And uh, today I explain you a recipe. The name is Once Upon a Time There Was a Trout. Once Upon a Time was one of the first dishes what we really created for cooked mountain philosophy. So absolutely no waste philosophy. We tried to use everything everything local, everything from the mountains. And so this was really the start. We said, okay, we use a trout, we put it on the table, and we, are not, we don't finish before we don't use every part of it. So with one trout, you can use for four persons, for four people. We do, uh, we fill, take the fillers off, then we take the skin off, and don't throw away anything. Then we have the bones and the head. So the skin, we are going to, to dry it, to make it crunchy, so it's the crunchy part of the of the dish. Then with the filler, we do a little bit of marinating, so with salt and sugar, and we leave it there for a couple of hours. Then we cut it, and it's going to be marinated just with a little bit of salt and very thin cutted green apples. Then with the skin, as I said, you know, we, we do the crunchy part. Then with the bones and with the head, we do a sauce. So a stock, so first we, we saute it really, really strong and then we add some white wine. Then we cook it and we do it like a beurre blanc. We use it as a beurre blanc. Then 
close to the river is always uh, dill, which grows in our area. And also for the dill, we do an oil. We do an oil, but we do it with grapeseed oil, because on this altitude where we are, we are not using any olive oil. And so grapeseed oil for us is very important because it has no taste and no color. So you can have 100% the taste of the, of the dill. And so also to use all the herbs in a really fresh way. So the composing is very easy. You just do the marinated trout on the, on the plate. Then you add the crunchy part. If you want, you can use also some trout caviar so that you use really everything. Then we pour the sauce close by and then this is done very simple and uh, it's a great dish and everybody loves it. And if you want to add some wine, we use uh, Sauvignon from Terlano which is a very fresh, very great white wine from this area, but it helps a lot and it cleans also the palate for this dish. So now I give you one of our secrets. Once upon a the time there was a trout. Hope to see you up in Alpine and 2,270 meters over the sea level with a beautiful view to the Dolomites. Would be great to have you. And I sit down with you and we have a drink together. Last week, Israel launched airstrikes on targets in Gaza. Andrew Muller discussed on the Foreign Desk Explainer what makes this event different from the usual warfare with Palestine. Since Russia ordered its forces even further into Ukraine than previously on February 24th, other conflicts have rather struggled for headlines. Even the conflict which for some decades has inflamed global opinion like no other. Late last week, Israel launched airstrikes on targets in Gaza. As of this broadcast, a ceasefire brokered by Egypt very shortly after hostilities commenced appears to be holding. According to Gaza's health ministry, at least 45 Palestinians were killed, among them 16 children. I went outside and found my husband covered in blood and dust. My only son shouted, Mummy, Mummy, I am covered in blood. All my daughters were shouting and crying, where are you, mummy? And these two twins were unconscious, not awake. It was very far from the first such Israeli raid, and it is depressingly difficult to believe that it will be the last. But this one was something of a departure from previous similar operations. It was not principally directed against Hamas, Israel's principal Gaza-based adversary of recent years, but against Palestinian Islamic Jihad, two of whose senior commanders, Taysir Jabari and Khaled Mansour, were among the fatalities. And it was not, as Israel often presents such things, a response to rocket barrages launched from behind the fences which surround Gaza, but, at least as Israel sold it, a preemptive manoeuvre designed to deter exactly this. Our fight is not with the people of Gaza. Islamic Jihad is an Iranian proxy that wants to destroy the state of Israel and kill innocent Israelis. The head of Islamic Jihad is in, in Tehran as we speak. We will do whatever it takes to defend our people. 
Although, it turned out, with limited success. Islamic Jihad launched hundreds of rockets at Israel. Many were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome air defence system, but 13 Israelis were treated for minor injuries. It may well be the case that Islamic Jihad caused more casualties among Palestinians. Multiple reports suggest that some of their rockets fell inside Gaza. The immediate build-up to this round of fighting began last week in Jenin when Israeli security forces apprehended Bassam al-Sadi, leader of the West Bank branch of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Al-Sadi's arrest, by some counts the eighth of his career, occasioned violence as it was taking place. A Palestinian teenager was shot dead after reportedly throwing an explosive device towards Israeli soldiers. In what seems to have been a long-planned operation, Israel then went after al Saudi's Islamic Jihad colleagues in Gaza. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, usually known by its last two names, was founded in 1981 by exiled Palestinian students in Egypt, predating the now much bigger and more powerful Hamas by a few years. While both groups receive guns and money from Iran, Islamic Jihad are even more militantly rejectionist than Hamas. They have never stood for election and appear to have no ambition of governing, even as ineptly or corruptly as Hamas do. Islamic Jihad's military wing, the Al-Quds Brigades, is believed to be maybe a few thousand strong. Islamic Jihad's current overall leader is Ziad al-Nakhala, who is generally thought to be resident in Lebanon or Syria, apparently unkeen on embracing the martyrdom he urges upon others. But he was in Tehran this past weekend, meeting with Iranian officials including President Ebrahim Raisi and Revolutionary Guard Commander Major General Hossein Salami. Al-Nakhala's statement in response to the Israeli strikes included a shout-out to, as he put it, the Arab and Islamic people that stood with us in solidarity. Well, up to a point. And here is something else which is different about this Israel versus Palestine clash and which is likely to grow steadily more different about future such eruptions. The governments of the Arab and Islamic people care a lot less about Palestine than they once did, or at least pretended they did in order to rile up the Arab and Islamic people and wind up America. In recent years, several Arab countries, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, the United Arab Emirates, have normalised or renormalised relations with Israel, and more will follow, possibly even including Saudi Arabia. Israel has become an increasingly strategically and economically important regional partner, not least because of shared suspicions of Islamic Jihad's patrons in Iran. Palestine has become increasingly regarded as a tedious and intractable mess. And not unreasonably. Even if a given Israeli government was serious about negotiating a settlement with their Palestinian neighbours, there is presently a grave shortage of people they could negotiate seriously with. On the West Bank, elderly and ineffectual Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is now 17 years into a four-year term, and his Fatah party have become justly proverbial for graft and incompetence. Gaza is misruled by a mob of theocrats 
theocratic fanatics chaotically pledged to Israel's destruction to the exclusion of most other concerns. Although some Israeli observers have perceived grounds for slight optimism in Hamas's relative rhetorical and military restraint this last week or so. Israeli operations continue on the West Bank. On Tuesday morning, Ibrahim al-Nabulsi, a commander in the al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, a militia vaguely linked to Fatah and sort of allies of Islamic Jihad, was killed along with two other people in a raid on a house in Nablus. Hopes that this will discourage others from following in Nabulsi's footsteps, or those of Jabari and Mansur, are doubtless forlorn. But so are the hopes of those who do. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Curator, and for this week's Global Countdown, I head to the largest music market in the world, the USA. I think sometimes, Georgiana, it's nice to go to the biggest market because I love going to smaller countries, discover new music, but it's important to look at the US because I think you can see trends that are happening perhaps in other countries because they're still heavily influential, right? Absolutely. So what's uh, at number five for you? Number five is an interesting one because it's quite an international collaboration here. We have a future. He's apparently the best rapper alive, according to GQ magazine. Uh, This song is featuring Drake, of course, from Canada, and Thames as well, from Nigeria. The song is called Wait For You. Let's have a listen. Traveling around the world Over the phone, driving to I get my bottle when I be pissed. When you drunk, you tell me exactly how you feel. When I'm loaded, I keep it real. Need to tell a real one exactly what it is. So his style of trap music, I think, is heavily auto-tuned. That's kind of, he was one of the the first to start doing that in the United States. And, you know, apparently he's got a lot of fans there, future. Mm. Um, You know, perhaps maybe I'm not a... The, the biggest fan, but it's, it's it's an okay track. And what about what about Drake? Well, Drake, it's interesting that his latest album, like our number one artist, which I'm not going to review who it is, he's exploring a little bit of dance music as well. I mean, of course, he didn't go full on dance music, but it's interesting. He's quite versatile, uh, and 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 again, he's successful all around the world. Yeah. Now the next one, if I say ah. Stranger Things, everybody will know who it is. Oh gosh, number four. It, 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 it's a beautiful track. Uh, bef- you know, of course, after we play the track, I want to tell you that, of course, the track is at number four because of Stranger Things, but there are other factors as well, Georgina. It's the magical Kate Bush with Running Up That Hill. Let's have a listen. I mean, this song, I, I, you know, it's very special every time I listen to it. And I think we were discussing this when uh, Kate Bush was number one here in the UK, right? But the surprising thing about that song, Georgina, is 
Very understandable, streaming numbers went through the roof after people start watching uh, the latest season of Stranger Things. But what's happening in the US, for example, the radio stations, the big ones, they are actually putting the song on A-list. A uh, so it's actually radio that actually making the song staying in, in the charts. Because, you know, sometimes, okay, there's been a good week for streaming. She might be number one or in the top five. But actually, it's, she's maintaining. So, so people are listening to this track the whole summer. So uh, even, uh, you know, people that work in radio, they're saying this is magical and doesn't happen very often. I wouldn't even say, oh, this is the new age of streaming. Old songs can return to the charts. Sure, but not quite as this song by Kate Bush. So, you know, uh, maybe that's her magical elements working in her favour. Well, I think she's completely fabulous and have loved her for forever. Now, let's come to this man who really has reinvented himself. Hats off to him from being uh, on a talent contest in a manufactured band to now being this wonderful kind of fluid pop star. It, it is such a, an interesting journey because it's true. I remember when he was auditioning for X Factor. Uh, and, and look at his career now. Uh, We're talking, of course, of Harry Styles. Harry Styles, of course, uh, who actually has the best-selling album of the year so far. And I have a feeling will stay that way uh, because, you know, people absolutely love him. I mean, if he's on the cover of a magazine, it will be sold out. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for listeners of the Global Countdown. I've played this song many times, but I mean, that's that's the trend. That's what people like. And if you may ask me, Georgina, I think As It Was, which we're going to listen uh, in a minute, is the perfect pop track. I think it's, you know, has elements of aha from the 80s, but a little bit of, of kind of yacht rock here and there. It is a beautiful track as well. And the video is wonderful. It was filmed at the Barbican and also at the Penguin Pole at the London Zoo. So here you go. Let's have a listen Harry Styles, As It Was. Very nice. Yeah, track. I also love the the way the way he dresses, the way he's he's been such an influencer in terms of of just doing exactly what he likes. Yeah, and the hair as well. I think he's got beautiful yeah. hair. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan, Harry Styles. If you're listening uh, to this as well, but you know, I, I think no, the number two song. I think it's so addictive, I have to tell you, Georgina. And if I may say, I, I might even sing to you a very brief line of the song because I'm obsessed. I'm singing in the shower. Uh, my voice is terrible, but she says, In a minute, I need a sentimental man or woman to pump me up. Do you know who it is? It's Lizzo. Lizzo. I mean, this song is addictive. And, I, and, and, you know, people start listening to this on TikTok. And it, and it became a thing. Because, of course, when the song started, well, I think it was the number 10 or something like that. But then it started climbing slowly. And now it's a number two and everybody is singing to this. And she's fun. Lizzo is fun. Shall she we have a fun. listen? Absolutely. It's about 
damn time. Yes, it is about damn time. And she was number one last week as well. I have to say. But I just her her previous one of her previous songs, uh, "Girls," uh, got into a bit of hot water here because she had the line I'm a spaz in it she changed that as soon as it was pointed out to her that that's actually an ableist slur Uh, she changed it to hold me back but she's not the only one who's fallen foul of that word and I think it's because it has different meanings in in the UK and the US Uh, I mean for instance we were discussing this earlier you'd not heard of it uh, as as any kind of slur I mean it it, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it references a common form of cerebral palsy, which is spastic diplegia, I think it is, and so that just comes as spas. It's a school ground taint, you know, for somebody who's just a bit odd. Uh, but of course, it's not a word that's used these days. Another person who's who's fallen foul of that was Beyonce. Yes, and and the interesting thing here as well, that because of of streaming and artists actually they can change the song. So you know, and, and I was even reading an article recently that there's no more a definitive track because things can change not only because of you know expressions that you know that artists regret but even in the case of Beyonce there was another example of she sampled uh, Kelly's milkshake and there was some issues with that and then she had to remove the sample but you know yes it is Beyonce and number one I mean I actually really love her new album and she's going to a more kind of a dance and house uh, mood I think it's, it's a stunning album and Break My Soul it's a great song sampled uh, Robin S Show Me Love I don't think Robin S had a problem with that I think it's been very much approved and there's been several remixes of this track I chose one it's just because it involves two queens it's basically Beyonce and Madonna wow and, and, I mean <laughs> It, it, it's a great one and she sampled Vogue um, and she, it's lovely because she mentions the name of Roberta Flack, Flack uh, Lauren Hill and other incredible uh, black uh, singers as well. Yeah. Shall we have a listen to this Absolutely. remix of Break Can't My Soul? Oh, I really enjoyed that beat. And that's her eighth number one in the US as a solo artist. If you count her time with Destiny's Child, she has 12 number ones. That's impressive. She's really incredible, isn't she? And, you know, uh, Fernando, I have to say, I was uh, looking through our uh, playlist earlier and I see that uh, that she's on there. She is on there with, uh, you know, I believe Summer Renaissance. And there's another sample there of I Feel Love by Donna Summer. I mean... When you sample Donna Summer, you can't go wrong with that as well. So go Beyonce. <laughs> go Beyonce. <laughs> and finally, for Monocle Reads this week, Georgina Godwin speaks to award-winning journalist, editor, educator and author as well, Linda Villarosa, about her newest book, Under the Skin. Racism, Inequality and Health of a Nation. It is a detailed account of racialized health disparities in the U.S. There has never been a time in American history where the health of black people, the health outcomes, has been equal to that of white people and often other people of color. And that begins at birth with infant and maternal mortality and morbidity and ends with life expectancy where black folks used to live three and a half years 
fewer than white people. And because of the pandemic, it's now six years fewer. Now, for you, this was a a sort of dawning realisation. I spoke earlier about you working on Essence magazine and uh, your thought about, and of course that was called the Black Woman's Bible. And at that time, you thought that perhaps it was about poverty or class. Why did that change? Well, I think that was the framework that most of us, even in even public health experts at the time, believed. And the idea was it's because of a lack of education, something we Black folks are doing wrong in our country, and not being educated, not understanding our health, not being proactive, rather than looking at the larger systemic issues that are against us and institutional issues. I think it changed for me once I went to public health school. I also began seeing that these disparities were far beyond what individuals could do, even though we were made responsible and blamed for these issues. And then I started to see in my own family that things happen to family members on, you know, unfortunate things in our current healthcare system. And I began to see that no, even when class and education are equal, Black people have a worse time with health outcomes and in the healthcare system itself. Mm. Your book, Body and Soul, The Black Woman's Guide to Physical Health and Emotional Wellbeing, was really the beginning of your exploration of all of this. It really was. And and that was building on years as the health editor and then the executive editor of Essence magazine. And I think I was beating myself up a little bit about Body and Soul because it really is a self-help book. It came out in the early 90s and it's telling Black women, if you just do better, you'll be better. And then I looked at it again and I thought, well, it is political as well. Angela Davis wrote the foreword. But still, I wish now looking back at that, I thought we need to look at the institutional and societal issues that affect health, not just telling black women, just do better and you'll be better. Mm. And of course, you've got personal experience, particularly of hospital treatment. Your father became terminally ill and that was not a pleasant, obviously, if he's dying, that's awful. But at the same time, there was discrimination, there was ill treatment. The hospital did, did not take care of you around that event. I was really shocked by that because my father was a trained scientist. He was a bacteriologist by training. He went into the hospital in the late 90s. I was in New York City. He was in Denver. My mother was in Denver and she called me home, said, you've got to come see what's going on with your father and you need to intervene with me. And we went to the hospital where he was. He had colon cancer and he was shackled to the bed. I mean, we call it restraints, but it looked like shackling to me. And he was a well-dressed, smart, college-educated Black man. So to see him with a dirty gown in disarray, being treated disrespectfully, was alarming. And it wasn't until my mother and I intervened, we showed the hospital folks pictures of him in his military uniform and with his medals. We showed them pictures of him before his illness and said to them, if you explain things kindly and with respect, he won't be upset and angry. And my father should not have, we shouldn't have had to intervene that way and to say, look, we're middle class, you have to treat him differently. Anyone should be treated with respect and be cared for in the healthcare setting. But that was the card we were able to pull. But of course, there is a long history of abuse and disrespect of the black body at the hands of medical providers and often in the name of science. Yes. And I was fortunate to be part of the New York Times magazines and New York Times' 1619 project in 2019. And that gave me the ability to look back. And for my book, I thought I will start with 1850 because that's when census data became very good in the United States. But then 
for the 1619 project, we were asked to look back further at the at 1619, the beginning of enslavement in America. And when I looked at how Black people were treated then, used in medical experimentation, assumed to have very high pain tolerance, which is impossible for anyone to have, and extremely low lung function, making, you know, justifying slavery. And then I was asked to trace the through line to today, and I could see a direct through line to today's healthcare. And that told me, wait a minute, this is very entrenched in our healthcare system and in our society, and I've got to bring this up and put it out in the open. Because, I mean, the history does go back to, for instance, uh, enslaved people having experiments done upon them and, and so on. And that was under the assumption that we didn't feel pain the same way. So in order to justify enslavement and all the cruel treatment that went with it, there was this, at first I was calling it an assumption, but really is a fallacy that was put forward by scientists, by doctors of the time, mostly Southern and many slaveholding, that would justify this kind of treatment and saying, well, Black people don't feel pain the same way, including emotional pain. So that's why it's okay to rip their children away from them, to harm people in front of them and to harm them themselves. And when I saw that and realized, wait, this was entrenched in medical training and medical practice, and then the remnants of it remain in medical training, medical practice today. Let's turn now to look at reproductive rights and reproductive health. Of course, that's very much in in the news at the moment. Where does that intersect with blackness? Well, if you look at, you know, recently we saw the end of Roe versus Wade, which is abortion rights. And with the end of that, the case that the Supreme Court case happened in the state of Mississippi. So if you look at Mississippi, Mississippi is the blackest state. It's the poorest state. It's also the state where infant mortality is extremely high, maternal mortality is extremely high, and child illness, poverty, and mortality is extremely high, if not the highest of all the states. So if reproductive rights were not even up to par before the case, now all abortion care is gone. And how I look at it is not, abortion isn't alone. Abortion is part of reproductive justice. And that is the right in this country to be able to have a child. That is the right to not have a child. And that is also the right, if you choose to have a child, to raise that child in a safe, healthy environment. So states like Mississippi and Alabama and the rest of the Southern United States where Black people predominantly live are the ones that have the fewest, that have the least reproductive justice. And that is unfair. So when something like, you know, Roe versus Wade ends, it strikes Black people hardest and worst. And I mean, there's also, I mean, I suppose what we hear in the UK called the postcode lottery, and it's about where you live matters. Yes, um, we call it zip code matters. And I started thinking about that. And that was one of the harder for me. It took me a minute to grasp that. And how I looked at it was through a personal lens. So in 2020, right before the pandemic started, I went to Chicago, where my mother is from. So she's from the south side of Chicago in a place called a neighborhood called Inglewood. In Inglewood, present day, people live to age 60. That's the life expectancy. Nine miles north, people live to age 90. It's the largest racial life expectancy gap in the country. My family, you know, I, I've made clear we were middle class. My mother got out of Chicago, but it was an important place. When I was growing up there, it was a place of plenty. It was a place of value. It was a beautiful place where a lot of people were striving to get ahead. 
I looked into it. Why would the life expectancy be so, so wide and people live to only age 60? My mother and I went back there and it looked terrible in 2020. It looked more like Mississippi where she had come from. So I thought to myself, why would this have happened? I looked at the history of redlining, which is the government practice of devaluing communities, which happened to communities of color in the United States, began in 1930, lasted to 1970. Also, that community was subject to contract buying. That meant Black people could not buy a house outright. A house is the biggest form of wealth here. And so if you couldn't buy the house, you could only get it on contract. That meant you never really owned it. You were always in jeopardy of losing it if you missed a payment. So Black folks weren't able to sort of build wealth and wealth goes hand in hand with health. So the community, communities like that, and there were communities all over the country like Inglewood in Chicago, just lacked wealth and then lacked health. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this, of course, is to do with environmental concerns too. These places that are in this kind of poverty trap are the ones that are not being taken care of at state level in terms of the environment. You pose the question, which you then go on to answer, about why so few people of colour are involved in environmental movements. Well, it's interesting. I thought about that. And then I and now I think of it on two levels. I went to a conference, I guess that was also in 2020, where it was a giant environmental justice conference. And there were so few Black people there. And the Black people there had been in the fight for a really long time. So the environmental justice movement was started in the late 80s in America because of the, what they called it, um, one person called it dumping in Dixie. So dumping in the South, in other words, building refineries near communities, landfills near communities, unhealthy, polluting sources near communities of color. So I thought about it, I was like, why aren't more Black people involved in this? Why does it look like more like a white movement? And I realized, and others too, that we have so many problems. It's hard if, you know, one of the problems is your community's being polluted. Another problem is your community is dangerous and there's gun violence. Another problem is there's not good hospital resources in your community or healthcare resources. It's hard to figure out an education. It's hard to figure out and to latch on to which issue to attack hardest. And so I'm forgiving of that. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>